So good chilly morning, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Hanging Out with Me and Chansey today. Yeah, good morning, Brad. How is everyone? Wishing all y'all good morning. We got up to a frosty 19 degree morning this morning. Following a very frosty week in general. Yeah, for uh, on Texas standards. We had two ice days at school this week. So last week when I told you that just maybe we might have a couple days off of work this week at school, we did. Yeah, yeah. The school god smiled down on us, and we got Thursday and Friday off of school because of ice hazards and all that. And it was icy. It was. It was. Yeah, the road was pretty. Uh, the roads were pretty slick out our direction. Sleet. We'd had some sleet. We didn't really have much snow out that way, but we did have a little bit of ice and couple frozen pipes and not too much danger of anything no we actually got lucky and like i said for those of y'all that live up north or even much north in texas we know y'all make a lot of fun of us down here in central texas but ice shuts us down real quick we just don't know how to drive in it we don't know how to dress with it our houses aren't built for it and don't know how to walk in it you know i mean just for example i fell on my back porch after i'd been telling my daughter all day long watch out for the ice on the porch well there i go forgot all about it and always in a hurry i went walking across and man i man feet went out from under me first thing that hit was my elbow at our age you can't be doing that chance you're gonna break a hip well, yeah shoot i don't know it's swole up and bruised and i'll get out but yeah teach me to i guess not be in a hurry <laughs> we have a boy who works for us at the feed store and he's recently got a job working at a feedlot up in nebraska so he's headed up that direction where i guess it's a little bit worse than our little bit of 20 degree weather that we had here this week oh yeah i can't imagine up there I'm, speaking of that i remember when we went to uh when i was working when i first went to iowa to hunt and guide you know i'd learned what to bring what to prepare and everything i never will forget there was a middle of december there was a group of just country boys from uh, conroe texas that was we used a, a taxidermist from conroe with the iowa people sent some of their guys up there to pick up all of our deer that we had harvested the capes and the antlers of it so they come mounted and i never will forget it those two kids jumped got out of that truck and i mean they had our car hard on and cowboy boots and it was like negative seven oh my gosh i don't even know how you prepare for something that cold (laughs) yeah man we had our wood stove burning full blast this week and it was still almost not enough (laughs) yeah i don't see how anybody makes it north of cameron texas but but kudos to you for doing it yeah y'all are tough hopefully that's the most of our texas winter and now we're going to head on to spring yes i agree you know and so it's a transitional time transitional time things are changing we need to be thinking about going out of the winter into the spring and some practices both in the woods and in the yard and in the pasture that we can be starting to either not implementing now or start putting on our radar to be thinking about in the near future you know start planning planning for the late winter and spring activities yeah central texas especially it's already the first second week of february depending on when you listen i guess pretty close to that out in the woods chancy There's several things that we could probably start to be thinking about doing. Yeah, yeah, you know, these are things that would apply in January or February, but uh, since we're just now starting some management activities that would be important that landowners could be doing on their place that help not only deer, but also all wildlife, especially turkey and quail. Some big ones right now you could be doing are browse surveys, you know. that Browse surveys are, it's basically telling you the, the amount of use and pressure on your woody plants. Like we said, the backbone of your habitat is your woody browse. Uh, you could also be doing shredding activities out there. Shredding, getting rid of your decadent damp, uh, grass. Prescribed burning is a big one. And then also disking. You can be doing disking right now. and that Prescribed burning and disking kind of go in conjunction together. We can talk about them quite a bit. And uh, So those are four things you can be doing right now. And they also help apply to your wildlife. If you're on a wildlife tax valuation, 
they also those activities you can be documenting them doing them and they apply to your annual reports or things like that for your reporting for the taxes and um I guess with those four things that could be happening right now, we'll kind of spend some time on prescribed burns and disking because they do kind of complement each other. Yeah, the two go hand in hand. Yes, they absolutely do. I'm guessing with all this rain that we've recently had in our area, we've got three and a half inches of rain this week, I believe. Been Maybe the burn, burn. The, the burn ban might be lifted. It probably is now. Yeah, we, we, we did have a burn ban I in effect. I haven't heard at the commissioners. You know, they're usually the ones that decide that, but I'm sure at the next commissioners meeting they may lift the ban or something. The untimely cool weather we've been having at different times and then that have knocked down a lot of the green plant growth around here on top of the dry grass and stuff like that i guess there's just there's a lot of fuel for wildfires in our area right now it was when it got dry it was in the winter time those first heavy frosts you know kill most of the pasture grasses that are out there and then we had a lot of windy days too so when you take that dry pasture grasses and then you know not much moisture and then the wind blows the fire hazards are you know they increase quite a bit and i think that's what they're looking at you know the commissioner's bless their hearts they never try to take in soil moisture and plant moisture and when you know all the different factors that really you need to be thinking about when you do a prescribed burn but in general they're looking at the safety of the population because a lot of people just go out there and just start burning stuff and they ain't thinking about if the wind's gonna blow which direction or any of that stuff so it's mainly like from a safety issue you know it's getting to be that time of the year where the green grass is starting to come out uh, it's some gonna, of the cool season grasses. The cool yeah. season grasses are starting to come out. It's going to be in the lower to mid seventies, I think, toward the end of the week. And so, so now is the time of the year to start looking into this disking and prescribed burning. Because we'll just start with prescribed burns, you know. And generally, when we in Texas do a lot of prescribed burns, it's in the winter time. And the reason that we do that in the first reason is because you know it's safer, you know. But historically, if you look at historical fires that occurred, were probably wildfires. They happened probably later in the spring with the storms that came over, or even in late summer during droughts. You know, that's when they probably historically happened. But human beings, we like to be safe, you know. So you can actually conduct kind of what I would call a more safer fire in the winter time you got a dead fuel source that's there generally if you've managed it or if you grazed your place properly you got a fuel source and another reason too at least here in texas a lot of times you get those bluebird days after a norther comes through particularly if you get a dry norther and uh you know it blows real hard but then you know you get those days a day or two after a bluebird kind of like today where the winds are consistently, you know, around 10 miles an hour. Just a nice breeze. Nice breeze. They'll carry a fire good for you. And uh, it's generally dry, or if it came dry, you you got a steady atmospheric conditions, you know. So you know the wind's going to constant. You're not going to get any wind shifts, basically. So those are good good times to be thinking about, we as managers. And plus, you know, it's... Uh, well, speaking of wind, while you're on the topic... If you start a prescribed burn, do you let you want the fire to the wind to push the fire, or do you want to back burn against well, the wind? Well, at first, from a safety standpoint, that's what I said. The first thing you do is you would, you know, you get whichever whoever. If you didn't have expertise in this, you know, you would talk to somebody that does, you know, and ask about you know a fire plan be put in place and fire conditions. But first thing you'd want to do is disc a fire guard, you know, disc a fire guard about the area you'd want to burn. And then um, it's always best to light it with a backfire. You know, think of your prevailing wind and light it with a backfire and then hit it with a flank fire later. But let it burn. Uh, that burns you know, a perimeter, a boundary yeah, from Yeah, or either where the head fire, the dump 
light that backfire to where fire ain't going to burn across where it's already burned. Where it's already turned black, fire ain't going to burn there no more. So right. if they were stuck in a fire, get to a black spot, you know, it's not going to burn there again. But So let it go in, you know, 50, 60, depending on how big of an area, a good amount, and then you can hit it with a head fire and come in. That same thing goes good for, like, your leaf litter areas. A lot of them in the post-oak savanna. You know, we've got just prescribed burns, just some of the things that are important about it and what they do if you don't know. They curve overabundant woody plants. So got a lot of young eastern red cedar out there or yopon or ash juniper out in the pasture if you're west of here. Fire will knock them out, you know. It'll really help. On my property, I'll do the leaf litter fires, you know. Like, you'd be surprised. A little leaf litter and all those water oaks and blackjack oaks, a little leaf litter fire just creeping through there. You know, it does more smoldering than it does it, burning. It smolders, but if you if you can get it when it's dried out, the leaves start drying out. It just makes a little front. It creeps through there, and it, it will move. It'll creep through there, but at a slow speed. Usually, especially if you don't have much wind in the woods. But your one, two foot tall yopons and and cedars, it'll smoke your little cedars, and it sets your yopon back. A, um, a bunch a whole lot you know it'll even kind of raise the canopy a little bit on those on, if it doesn't kill the yopon like it won't kill them but it'll set them back and you can actually start getting some sunlight in there which is very helpful sometimes it takes you three fires three years of doing that to make a fire you know you just gotta start small depending on your fuel load so and your slower growing trees they need that to get rid of a lot of the a lot of your your faster growing shaded trees that are shading out yeah, your it's like your, your oaks and hickories they need some type of disturbance you know a fire or grazing by large herbivores or tornado or whatever something to create a disturbance because what happens you get these shade tolerant plants like cedars and yopons that just choke everything out grow so fast and they grow so fast they have shallow root systems they take up soil moisture but then they shade out all your all your uh better quality plants your your oaks and stuff your hardwoods so prescribed burn can definitely help with that it, it's also it's practical it's it's effective and it's long term you know i mean think about it. you can take out a lot of little cedars you know with one prescribed well-planned prescribed burn and going out there with loppers you know and doing it uh it adds nutrients to the soil so you know burning it puts it does do that lots of nutrients goes right back into the soil so you do it this time of year Right in time for spring rain, spring growth, guess what? All new deer food and food's going to come up, you know, lush. It, it just makes the everything pop. You'll have some beautiful little green forbs and yes, different types of things following a yes, fire that start like to come up. Mm -hmm. And also it gets rid of decadent grass. Well, it's potash, so, basically. Yeah, potash. Mm -hmm. And nitrogen, too. I mean, yeah, with the, all, the, all the other stuff. And then when it rains in there, just uh, like fertilizer. Uh, decreases decadent grass. So if you got grass, it's just, you know, grasses need to be stimulated, need to be burned or mowed or grazed or something to get them to grow and make them healthy and vigorous. So if you got a bunch of decadent stuff out there, fire will really get them going. So it was just for an example, there's the A&M's done a lot of studies where they found like seven times more protein rich insects present in uh burned versus unburned uh, pastures, seven times more. So what is it that baby quail and turkey poults eat? What do they need? Insects. They have to have insects. They have to have insects and spiders and protein. And seven times seven more times in a more. burned area. They've done studies on just taking an area that wasn't burned and then taking an area that burns, and there's seven times more protein-rich insects in those burned areas. You don't think about something as simple as an insect being affected by fire. Like it, 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 it the improves. Less grass. Yeah. Yes, they have little, weeds. little more to eat. Yeah, and just, you know, flourish. And I said, I said nitrogen. I don't know, but it's like a fertilizer, you know. 
that just helps. Definitely potash. What does burning do to Bermuda grass? It'll help it this time of year. Yeah, especially if you burn it in general. In general, and this is like I said, general, but in generality, cool season fires help warm season grasses. So if you burn even native grasses, or even we're eliminating some competition. Even exotic there too. grasses too. So and timing, because one problem is if you're burning a cool season burn this time of year, even later, say March, a lot of your winter weeds or winter weeds and winter wildflower or spring wildflowers and spring weeds are already up. They're just sitting there; they're not blooming now. So a cool season fire can hurt those. So yes. you got you to watch out for that. But if, say, you've got camphor weed out there, a problem weed that's starting to come up right now, you could hit a cool season fire right now, and that will set back that camphor weed. And it will help establish your warm season grass. So it would help Bermuda grass. Um, well, native, in turn, you're eliminating, that, you're eliminating that early season competition yes. you have when all your warm season grasses are trying yeah. to get going. Same reason that people spray, you know, their pastures and stuff this time of year for ryegrass or something like some weed that's out there right now. Something that goes really good hand in hand together is, you know, if you have a big enough place, you can kind of utilize this, especially in, if you have mostly native range, what's called patch burn grazing. It's areas, you know, where people will follow a grazing herd you know behind where they burn so burn a little patch and then uh let it green up and then follow it with some cattle you know and the patch burn grazing it seems you know there's all kinds of different grazing strategies you know from high intensity low in frequency to um, continuous to no grazing but that patch burn grazing seems to be very very similar to what historically was here as far as fires and bison and everything and quail and insects and turkeys and wildlife seems to really respond to that type of system if you have the ability to do that but that takes large acreages in our neck of the woods where we're at most of we're dealing with the small stuff less than 20 acres if we're doing a prescribed burn and in a woodland type situation i'm looking at you know you don't burn it all at once you know unless you have a specific reason well it's much easier to manage that way yeah you know look at it a third out of a time you know plan an area and then burn a third here a third next year a third following year that way you've got different successional stages too happening once you get it established kind of where you want you may not have to burn once every three to five years depending on rainfall in this neck of wood once every three to five years now you go east it might be once every three years something like that that's all that's west of here might be once every seven to ten years so yeah yeah so what how does disking go into this besides disking a boundary yeah like you disk your boundary around your your area you're going to burn and yeah, it gives you can it a boundary use it as a fire guard so yep. basically you're, you're out there disking but so you can be disking right now um, also from a wildlife perspective as well. From a wildlife, I'll just give y'all some little things real quick that what disking does. And when I say disking, I'm talking about just a, a disk, shallow. You're not trying to go in there and upturn roots. You're yeah, just, we're not going to go in there and deep plow this. No this is just plow, scratching the surface. Scratching the surface. No more than two inches. You know, about no more than four inches mm-hmm. for sure, depending on your soil types. But two to four inches. All you want to do is scratch the surface and get those seeds that are sitting there in the ground. Cover turn, them with dirt. Yeah, and then also to expose them. Some of the weed seeds. Were what, what disking does right now is it brings a lot of our crotons and ragweeds and stuff like that that makes big seeds up. Like, say, when you disk, depending on the time you disk, you'll get different responses from different plants. So disking in the fall is different than disking in the in in the winter springtime like right now so right now disking you'll get a lot of your spurges uh like what it's called people call dove weed and crotons panic grasses pigweed annual sunflower if you've got annual sunflower disking it right now will kind of get it going and you want to 
disc any time in the wintertime between like the first frost and the first the last frost so you want that seed to get scarified first before spring and that helps germinate it to get it growing these weeds anytime between the first frost and the last frost. for winter disking for winter disking now, now if you disk in late summer you'll get a different response especially like a blue bonnets if you lightly disk in like late september you know in september you'll get a response pretty quick from blue bonnets if it rains a lot of times that little bit of soil disturbance in september well, mate, and you get a rain in October, you'll get a lot more blue bonnets just from a light. If they're sitting there dormant, you're just not doing anything. If the seed's been sitting there, sometimes just a little bit of soil disturbance can really help with spring wildflowers. So like a spring wild, you know, late summer disking may help spring wildflowers, whereas, in, like I said, this is in general. It depends on the mountain timing of rainfall, what was historically there, what seed source you have in the, in the soil. But And then late winter time, it generally helps get your crotons and your ragweeds and stuff, stuff that blooms in the fall mm -hmm. going, you know. So doveweed, that's kind of an in general in general term. So what is a general procedure right now for doing this disking? Well, there's several different ways, but you're thinking about it from a food source, and you only want to disk areas that's already dominated by grass. So, And I like to, because you're trying to make food, so from a deer and a quail and a uh, turkey standpoint, you want to put your strips near cover, near cover. That way the animals don't have to follow so far. So, you know, it is 8 to 16 feet wide, uh, maybe 20 yards or so from a cover area where they stay. And then you can stagger, you know, skip 8 to 16 feet and do another one because you don't want to disc the same spot every year. If you disc the same spot every year, that just encourages exotic grasses. You want to disc it, let it ride for two or three seasons. Whenever it starts getting dominated with grasses again, that's when you hit it again so some people will disc a spot and then the next year disc 8 to 16 feet right next to the spot they did the previous year and then the third they'll do it and then by the fourth year they're back to their first disking strip that way they've got a food because basically what you're trying to do is create a food plot naturally with your na a natural food plot mm -hmm. with all these weeds because like what we said so number one when they start growing and they're young and tender your deer are going to go out there and hit them and then number two once they start producing seeds most of these grass most of these forbs or come up with disc or rag weeds and crotons and dove weeds they make big seeds and big seeds are absolutely the the the, the fundamental what birds quail feed on in the winter time that keeps them going in the winter time so these big seeds and in those late summer too i mean they're critical for them you know if you don't have that and you've got smaller acreage you can disc in mosaics you know just little areas here and little areas there what you don't want to do you just want to create you're basically trying to create edge you can implement these disking strips with your fire, your you know, for fire breaks. Well, it's also good and burning, for burning patchworks, and it's also good for leveling off gopher mounds or leveling off ant beds, different hog rootings, different yes. things like that. Yeah. Disking also helps with that. Absolutely, it helps leveling that, and it encourages the growth. It's a way to put a food source out there that's going to last all year from deer, and then also. I shouldn't say all year long, but have food there at different times of the year because those plants are going to grow. And when they're growing, guess what? Uh, they're going to, and they're lush and green. They're going to attract insects. And guess what insects are important for? Baby quail, baby turkey, insects and spiders, by the way. And then when they get mature, they're going to set seed. Well, guess what? They got to eat when they're adults. Quail don't like little tiny seeds. They like big seeds. You know, and most of these big seeds are like your crotons. And when I say a big seed, y'all, I'm talking about something like the size of a uh, Milo, you know, like a little Milo. 
something fairly large compared to if you've ever looked at like a some of the wildlife wildflower seeds are just dust you know they're just tiny little things you got they have to eat quite a few of those to get any benefit out of it compared to some of these yeah, larger some seeds. of these larger seeds do you know how long those seeds could lay in the dirt before they're no good is there any that i mean it's an excellent question and i'll be honest with you i don't it know seems like forever a long time uh, yes. i'm telling you 20 years plus some of them and i'm, I'm, I'm guessing positive. they could lay like in this deeper dirt for yes. a long period of time you disc it up you flip it up to the top and then it gets the light and the warmth or whatever it is yes. that it needs to to germinate it finds there those seed coats on those plants and it's just remarkable like i've seen stuff that was disc deep that i know that seed source had to come from deep and it was there and no telling how long it been sitting in there so i i don't know an exact time i know some plants they lose their viability over years stuff that's been studied like they've done a lot of studies on endangered species plants you know about how long can that seed stay and some of those i know prairie bush clover some stuff i've worked with in southwest minnesota you know they're looking like after five years if it doesn't have some type of disturbance like a grazing to scarify it then the viability goes way down after five years after five, for that particular species for that particular so a lot of these species you got to think they may have been adapted to a disturbance maintained ecosystem Kind of like the biology of the species. If you're adapted to something grazing in fire, well, that means that you need to germinate every four or five years, whatever schedule that timing was in. And so many of them appears that they are adapted to that and they lose viability. Whereas other ones, some of those plant species, I think even in the Pacific Northwest, some of those like uh, conifers out there, they won't, they won't even germinate until after a wildfire. You know, it needs. It takes it, it in order to, to germinate. Yeah, so you know, it's just the system, the system that we're still learning about. So is is there so is disking and burning? They're pretty much you could use one or the other. Well, yeah, most of the time, you know, like people use disking or burning when they can't graze. You know, sometimes if they, or they can't do like usually burning and grazing go hand in hand together. Well, if you can't graze and you can't burn, then people will shred. You know. Shredding is the next best thing if you can't do either. Probably the, the easiest and the, the yes. least uh, effort involved, yes. I would say, out mm-hmm. of all of it will be shredding. Yeah. And it gets rid of your decadent grass, you know, but you can also leave a lot standing there, you know, and, th- and that that can create its own problem, all that decadent grass that's laying on top of the ground, you know. I mean, it's still better well, than Well, that's nothing. a fire hazard. can be a fire hazard. And also, I've also noticed, too, uh, in areas that you've shredded that had lots of stuff and leave all that decadent stuff just laying there on top of the ground, it just seems like it doesn't decompose as fast. And in our area, we have hogs. It seems like, I don't know, it holds that moisture, so it probably brings grubs and stuff up closer, and hogs will go and hit some of those areas where they're decadent grass. And that's just an invasive species problem, too. I mean, if we didn't have that, it wouldn't be that big a problem. But, you know, when that cow is out there grazing that grass, it's doing its, doing its rooming thing and all that, and then it's putting it out, and it's putting it out in little pockets. And if your ecosystem's functioning, where right, you've got dung beetles and microorganisms and good, healthy soil, well, guess what? Those plants, when that poop hits the ground, that soil is able to break it down, use it, and then put it back in the soil. So that's still no, kind of the way the system was put into place, so especially like healthy native rangelands. You know, a lot of good native rangelands have dung beetles. Those dung beetles are extremely important. They're pretty fun to watch. Oh, I love watching them. I mean, I could spend, well, I used to. I used to follow them around with a camera and take pictures of them. And they're actually little problem solvers. Like, you know, they'll fight over their little dung ball. But if you've ever followed one, and when I was in South Texas, I'd follow one. They'd take it into like a red ant mound, and those red ants will defend. There's red ant, there'd be little dung balls just sitting in that circle, red, man, red ant mound circle where the dung beetles say, well, i got to get out of here. But then other times, you can follow them and watch them. 
they'll run into like a rock or an obstacle and they will crawl up on top of their little dung ball and look around. I watched them. They'll crawl up on top and like look around to figure out, okay, which way do I need to go? Really? I have watched them do it. Yeah, they're amazing to watch, man. This little stuff like that's fun to watch. Like having its own little lookout tower on well, yeah, top of that ball like, of okay, poop. Well, yeah, okay, well, I run into something. What do I, how can I get around <laughs> this, you know? And then I, he did. He went over there, and I got pictures of him. He looked around and then come over and then went on. I wouldn't call it problem solving, but he did sure went up there and <laughs> looked around, checked it out, and got out the situation there's some working dudes aren't they they are yeah but yeah. what do they do with that well they take the dung but they don't the little dung ball and they lay their eggs on it and oh. they bury it down the ground and their egg hatches as far as i know there's a bunch of different species we got the little black ones and we got the green ones i've seen you know? the black ones mostly yeah the ones i've seen and there's some green ones like the real pretty you know green as well uh for what i understand they you know, get the dung, and then they dig a little hole and put the dung in the ground. You know, it's probably like a squirrel burying an acorn. Yeah. No more than an inch or two deep, and they lay their egg. And then, I mean, think about it on a on a micro level, but also, you know, on a mega scale, too, of thousands of dung beetles spreading all that manure out across the, uh, you know, the native range out there. A good way to disperse that. Yeah, it's a good way to disperse it. And, you know, when you start losing soil microorganisms and soil health and soil quality and stuff like that, the root systems get shallower, a lot of that stuff doesn't, doesn't function as well. I've got to look it up maybe for the next episode, but I don't remember if it's the if it's the uh, the IGR that's in the fly control tubs that or the fly control stuff that people feed to your cattle and stuff, and is what it does is it, it gets inside the manure and then flies Helps lay. It. Yeah, yeah, the flies the flies lay eggs inside the 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 manure. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and then that. and then this uh, the the IGR the chemical that's inside of this manure now it keeps the fly from becoming an adult and so it, it controls flies in that way. And we'll talk about that a little oh, more yeah. whenever fly season comes. But hey, I don't, speaking, or go. I don't remember if it's the IGR or if it's the ivermectin or if it's the Safeguard Wormer. I gotta look it up because it's been now it just pops into my head. I probably should just kept my mouth shut. But <laughs> one of them is really bad for the dung beetle. It it it's basically it basically kills them. And I'm wondering if it's not the IGR that's in those tubs. Uh, I think it is. Maybe that so. that would make the most sense. Possibly. I I know you know we used to see a lot of dung beetles before like improved pasture really started getting you know pushed on. In the 80s and, you know, 90s even. But uh, you go down to places in Oklahoma and places where they still got a lot of pretty large native range, you know, native grasses out there. There's still quite a bit of dung beetles out there. Yeah. South Texas, for sure. Uh, One other thing I want to mention, you know, just kind of as we're out here managing, producing with our cattle and grazing, if we have that ability. You know, every year this time of year, what, Brad, y'all are selling a lot of what, molasses and syrup stuff like that yes. salt blocks you know where everybody most people they keep all their salt blocks and they keep um all their uh, molasses in one area and one thing i have to mention that if you've got a good grazing plan and a good grazing regime and you know you're allowing your pasture to rest letting it be grazed you probably don't even need to disc you know just the hoof action in the cattle well, but it does help with uh, compaction. Yeah, and, and it, it also helps with fire guards. But, you know, if you're doing everything kind of right, uh, letting things rest, you get a lot of those forbs anyway, you know, that comes up just the hoof action from the, the cattle. The hoof action from cattle it, does disturbing. help with all that. So one thing you can think about if you're on a small, for, for smaller type landowners, where you're feeding your salt blocks, where there's a lot more hoof action and stuff going on there where that molasses Or where the, you feeding. feed hay. Yeah. Where that is a great place to find stuff yeah. like that. So it's best to rotate 
where you change, I mean, change those areas that way. Because think about it, you move that area for the next year, all that area is going to grow a lot of forbs and weeds just from the hoof action this year uh-huh. that's being done. So, you know, you can change those feeding spots from year to year and change the location of where more abundant forbs and weeds are. You know, that's a great way to fertilize a pasture is to move where you feed your hay around different places of the pasture. Sure. They congregate there. Like you said, you get some hoof action, but especially if you're feeding like native grass hay that has a lot of seeds in it. Oh, yeah. Man, you, if you unroll those rolls, you know, and you feed them in that way, or if you if you spread them around the pasture, it's a good way to get grasses sure. established. Absolutely it is. Yeah, and so, I so, mean, uh, how, expensive is a, how expensive is a bag of native grass seed? Oh, it depends on what you buy, but it's ridiculously expensive. I mean, just just imagine if you've got native grass hay, what that's worth. Those yes. seeds inside that inside that row of native grass hay that you're yeah. that you're putting out. Now a lot of people are, you know, if you've got a coastal Bermuda pasture, I guess you don't really want to like people may be concerned about getting that started. But yeah, and if you've got native pasture, you need to be concerned about where you get your hay too. You don't want to bring in a bunch of stuff with bromuses or cheek grass or you know if, <laughs> Johnson grass. Well, like if it's that, one so thing about Johnson grass, it will not survive in a pasture. Cows yeah. will destroy the cows will keep that Johnson grass. Johnson, you'll need, you're not going to find that as a grazing source in many yeah, they in many hammer pastures. It down to they nothing. hammer it down to nothing. Yes. Uh, uh, it, I think, Chancey, thinking back, I think it is the Altacid that's in the uh, those IGR tubs. I believe really? it is. That's one of the downfalls about that is that it harms the dung beetles and it, and, huh. and, and little parasitic wasps and different types of flies that you, that off off target species sure. that is because a lot of those parasitic those there are parasitoids, man. I mean, they they are killing machines. Pretty much every little critter that's we call a pest, those parasitoids usually will get them well, and well, some or control them some way. Yeah, when you mentioned that he that they lay their eggs in that, yeah. and that's what got me thinking about it. I, I well, think that's that news that, to me. I did not know. Yeah, that, they put that out to sit in those IGR tubs. Uh, it's an insect growth regulator, is what IGR stands for, and it's out to sit out soil, whatever, however you pronounce it, is that that they put into it. And uh, these, like I said, these cows lick it. They put it in a mineral. They put it in a tub. Uh, and they even have a different one for horses that control like face flies and stuff like that. So they 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 ingest this stuff in this tub. It doesn't hurt the cows or anything like that. It's passed on into the manure. And then flies. There's only like a short amount of time that a fly could lay an egg into a, a into a pile of manure before it gets that glaze, like a hard glaze sure. on top of it. Uh-huh. And they can no longer lay an egg inside that. So this. There's altacid gets in there. They lay the little egg in there. I think it gets to the larva stage, and that's as far as it gets. I, I got to look that up before fly season comes, but it seems like that's what I, I – I do remember, though, now now reading up on that years ago. Yeah. And you mentioned that dung beetle, and I remember that now being an issue. You know, that's just fascinating stuff. I've got to tell the story. Well, it'll be quick, Brad. I'll tell problems. But uh, uh, talking about the parasitoids, this last fall we had an army worm problem. You know, last, or last early, summer, we had a early, really early, yeah, early, early army worm I problem. I was traveling a whole lot then, and I never will forget. Like I was on airplanes all the time, and I noticed I got home and there was uh, I saw army worms in my yard, and I'm like, God dang! It's one of those things I didn't have time to. But spray, I just You'll didn't. usually get them in your oats and your fall grasses, but yeah, this, this year they year came they out so early they were getting the Bermuda grass. Yeah, they were in my lawn. I was like, man, I just don't have time to. But then I started paying attention. I started looking because I've sprayed for them in the past before. And I got to look, and there was these little small, I don't even know what they were. They were wasps, and they looked like yellow jackets, but they weren't yellow jackets. They were striped like that. But they were little bitty, and they were like little, I don't know, stealth bombers, man. They were... 
one of them stung me actually i guess it got too close stung me. it had a pretty bad little sting but it's like a scorpion you know it's like it hurt real bad but then it went away yeah for me, like scorpions they hurt just for a little bit and then they go away and don't thrive whereas if i get stung by a wasp it hurts and hurts for you know pretty good while throbs but anyway these things were after those army worms i got to follow them around and they would hover and they were fighting them they would hover above the ground like little apache helicopters and patrol and when they saw an army worm they would zip down there and start stinging the daylights out of it and then they were like dung beetles another one would come over and try to steal his army worm and they would fight about it and i got to watch it as unbelievable and i didn't have time anyway to do it you know, so I was like, well, I don't know, but I watched them for Man, I wonder what minutes. little insect that was. You know, I tried to find it in my Insects of Texas book, but it was one of those things like, okay, where well, there's 20 different species that look like that. You know, I didn't know. And I actually, I think I sent it to an A&M guy at the time. I didn't know him, but I never heard back because I didn't know the specific. They probably could put it some type of family of wasps, but they were, they looked like little yellow jackets, but they were smaller than a honeybee. And man, they could fly unbelievable and they were all over the place like they and so long story short i had to leave for a week and i didn't know what to expect when i came back there were no army worms in my yard these little and, wasps took yeah, care of I that got about you. a three acre yard at solid bermuda yeah and i Those wonder wasps if took care of all and there was literally hundreds of them when because they didn't, couldn't see them very well but when you got to looking and got down on your eye level and started watching them man they were just like little drone helicopters, you know, hovering 10, 12 inches off of the yard looking for army worms. And, man, they took care of the problem. Is that right? Well, so if you think about it, I mean, maybe in the fall time when those army worms usually come out, yeah. I wonder if those little wasps are still around or if they it's too cold be. for them by might, that time. It might be. And so this year, they it was super early. Yeah, it was. It was. It was, it was the oddest time for a yeah, fall army worm. Yeah, I would say it worm. was in July, wasn't I it? I think it was. Yeah. And it just stayed so cool here this summer. We had a lot of rain. We had a lot of rain. It was a weird year here. And and so I guess these these little these little walls they're like holy crap this is easy money here yeah it was it was real go get your buddies yeah it was they they fixed me up at least my yard anyway we gotta Mm -hmm. we gotta ask some questions and look a little bit more into that yeah like i said i've got a texas insect book and you know it had one i was like well it looks like that but it's not quite that and then i looked in my big entomology and i took entomology in grad school but uh when you start getting down to family level on insects, it, yeah, you better know your stuff. <laughs> I did entomology in 4-H yeah. years ago. Lord have mercy, there's a lot to that. Yeah, you think plants are hard to key out. You start trying to idea, you know, key, especially your flying insects, your dragonflies. We used to do a lot of macroinvertebrate stuff in Tennessee with dragonfly larvae. And, pff, yeah, you better know your stuff. You should go to try to identify and pass the family level to and some of those critters. Entomology is one of the hardest things I think I've ever looked into. There's a lot of lot of different things that goes into classifying insects. Yep. Uh, you know, so you're talking about that. And so right now is a good time to be disking. It's a good time to be burning mm-hmm. to, in preparation for your warm season grasses to start coming out and your sure. little forbs and all those different types of things that, that's important. Well, it's also getting to be that time of the year to plant potatoes too. <laughs> yes, potato time, yeah. So everybody always says that you plant potatoes around George Washington's birthday. Yeah, it's been the age-old thing that oh, you plant potatoes on George Washington's yeah. birthday. And so, I always kind of thought he was around Valentine's uh, around, Day. So, yeah, I, like, so this is kind of weird this morning. So me and Chancey are talking about what all is the time of the year to do. And we said, well, it's time to plant potatoes. I actually talked to a a, a good friend of mine, Larry Slotic. He he was a uh, uh, the manager of Helena and Taylor, Texas, right up the road. 
Uh, for a lot of years, he's probably the most intelligent chemical guy that I've probably ever talked to in my life. He could tell you what to do on yards. He could tell you what to do pastures. He could tell you what to do on just about anything that involves fertilizers or, or herbicides or any of that kind of stuff. And so I happened to mention to him, I said, Larry, ain't time to plant potatoes because we've had them at the feed store here, uh, Cameron Farm Ranch. We've had people coming in. We're done sold out of potatoes already. Uh, so many people have come in and bought them. But I said, I said, isn't it time to plant that? And he said, oh, yeah, on uh, George Washington's birthday. And I said, golly, I completely forgot that it, that, that is what everybody always says on, on, on George Washington's birthday. So I said, Chancey, yeah. Google when George Washington's birthday is. Yeah, you know, because we took it for granted, you know, George Washington's birthday. So I started Googling, and I didn't, at first, I just saw, I was like, well, it looks like there's some discrepancies here. That didn't make it's sense. It's almost like he was born twice. Yeah, I was saying, like, it's like, is it on the 11th or is it the 22nd of, of February? February. You know, so I didn't know. It just goes to show what, what you don't know. So I went to the National Park Service, you know, that has the Washington Monument and everything. Kind of got a history about it. And they go into detail that uh, George Washington's got two birthdays, depending on which calendar you use. As does pretty much everybody, <laughs> everybody born does. around that time. Yeah. And this is a crazy story. Yeah. I have, like, I don't know how I've lived. You know, one of those things, like, how have I, I, I was this, I was today old whenever I learned this because, like, I mean, I can't believe I've lived 40, 41 years now. Yeah. And had no clue that the calendar actually shifted. Me too. I'm 42 and I didn't know it till today. I mean, we're talking how, who would ever thought that I learned this from thinking about potatoes. So do you think, Chansey, <laughs> you could explain to us that how it is that George Washington has two birthdays? Okay. So from what I understand, like I said, I just read that, you know, when he was born, we were under British rule. Being under British rule, if you would have been, basically they decided in 1750, what was it? 1752. That 17, 1752, yeah, America was under British, British rule. rule and George that, Washington was just a young lad. Yep. And all of Britain, Britain and its colonies were under what they were called the Julian calendar. And the rest of Europe was under what's called a Gregorian calendar during that time period. And Britain, they thought that we needed to be all under the same calendar, so it just jived. So there, were, there was a big difference. One of them had this year starting on January. March 20th, yeah, one of them, the, our Julian calendar, actually had the first year, the first year starting on March 25th. Okay. And the Gregorian calendar had it starting January 1st. So in 1752, the British switched the American colonies to that um the one that had the january the first yeah, to the gregorian calendar uh -huh. and so that was one thing that had to happen in order to get the calendars lined up in the discrepancies the other thing that had to happen is you're going to have to lose 11 days somewhere and uh they decided i guess to take them out of september for whatever reason i'm not sure i don't know so here's the weird thing yeah. about it people went to sleep on september the 2nd of 1752 yes they woke up on september the 14th, 14th. 1752 yeah how weird was that yeah and it says so not only did washington's birthday get shifted by like 11 or so days everybody's birthday got shifted by 11 or something a lot days. of people didn't even have a birthday that year yeah the ones but that were between born between september 2nd and september 14th yeah that just really screws with my mind man golly I mean, like, can so, you imagine that yeah. uh, and then getting word across across a sea yeah from britain over to america and then getting the word to all the people in america you know yeah. like okay guys here's what we're gonna do in september the 2nd we're gonna go to sleep yeah and then when you're gonna wake up you're gonna change your calendar to sep to september the 14th yeah 
That that probably opened up some debate. I'm sure it did. It, it, you know, like it's one thing to have a leap year every four years, you know, but uh, you know, tw- an extra day in February every so often. But golly, changing that was a huge change. September man. the third through September thirteenth, seventeen fifty two. There's no history that happened on those days. Isn't I that guess, weird to think about? I, I guess so. Like I said, it's hard for you start manipulating time. It, kind of screws with my mind everybody's you know? <laughs> birthday was shifted 11 days basically yeah. including george washington yeah so now we have president's day which is february 22nd when his birthday was actually february yeah. the 11th but on the national park service said if you were to ask his mama when his birthday was it was february 11th february 11th yeah. and now it's february <laughs> so and then in 1752 it yeah. shifted to february the or 1753 i guess yeah it started to be february 22nd yeah that's crazy i, I, I had no idea me either i yeah. didn't know that um and pretty recently 1752 is not all that long ago well, no you know in the grand scheme of things yeah. but uh so so we don't know if you should plant potatoes on february the 11th <laughs> or february 22nd yeah you plant them on george washington's birthday yeah so i guess just shoot for valentine's <laughs> a day in between yeah whenever you choose to celebrate george washington's birthday <laughs> that's the day that you should plant potatoes yes it's a, it's that time of the year to start doing that too and i know chancy's been planting some potatoes yeah we're getting close year. to be, hopefully he ain't done it yet no i haven't yet last yeah. year i planted them i remember i planted them right before the great snow hit so that weekend before, I remember uh, I planted potatoes, and uh, then it snowed, and, you know, shoot, they seem to do all right. This is my first year planting potatoes. I don't know much about them, but try to first you got to have sandy land. Yeah. And they I'm, don't do real I well in the black I added a bunch of mushroom, mushroom compost with it, too. It's mushroom compost, and then also I kind of live in a sandy loam. That mushroom compost is really good stuff. I like it, man. That's yeah, a beautiful, yeah. beautiful compost. It's rich, too, man. When they bring it, man, it's hot. You can smell it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So you may be better off just shooting for Valentine's Day to plant your potatoes. <laughs> that's right. That's kind of right in the middle of those two days, anyways. Uh, we're not real sure what what day you should shoot for there on that, being though that that. But then we thought that was an interesting fact, so we had to bring that up. Yeah. Uh, other things going on though, you know, Chancy mentioned that 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 it's a uh, a lot of little weeds and stuff are going to start to come up, which are great for deer, which are great for wildlife. Yeah, but not but so much in your yard. Not so much in your yard. Uh, if and talking to talking to Larry, the main reason I called him was I'd forgotten the rate. Now I don't know how many of you guys have paid attention this year to the cost of Roundup or glyphosate. If you could find it, it's gotten really expensive. So in previous years, you know, people would be like, "Well, how much should I put?" Well, just use the glug method. You know, I mean, to put two glugs in there, put two glugs per gallon. You know, mm-hmm. glug glug out of the jug. But now it's getting so expensive. People are gonna have to start watching. Sure. You're gonna have. To, I mean, there's gonna be a big difference now in in spraying the label rate of Roundup at like 22 ounces per acre compared to a quart per acre that some people do. Mm-hmm. And so, in reality, that's a good thing. Yeah. Well, everybody, those labels are there for a reason. They're there for know? a reason. And so, yeah, we as producers, we as opera, we need to be following the label at all times. Yes, and sure. it saves you so much money. Yes, it does. And believe it or not, you follow the label, you still get good kills. I mean, I have, you know, especially when it comes to spraying brush, you know, or follow the label, you get a good kill. It works. Sure. Glyphosate is going to be a very limited resource this year. Yes. Well, just tell you how bad it is. Uh, last year... I think it was like for two and a half gallon jug, like around forty five bucks. And I saw in Tractor Supply the other day. I went in there. There was a they were selling it for I think one thirty nine ninety nine. 
For one, a two and a half gallon jug? One two and a half gallon jug, yeah. One thirty-nine. $140 yeah. already? Yeah. I had to stop in Marble Falls for something, and uh, it was in Marble Falls. I had it for one thirty-nine ninety-nine. Man, and that jug, we were selling it for $46 last year. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's, it's gotten, just generic glyphosate. Just 21%. generic, yeah, four yeah. pounds per gallon. Yeah. yeah, it's gotten really expensive, uh, and so but we're in a transitional time now for our yards too, uh, going from a cool season your ryegrass, all that type of stuff, on to a warm season grasses like your Bermuda is going to start to come out, your Saint Augustine is going to start to come out. Okay, so I'll never forget this years ago. I used to take care of the, the Bermuda grass on the on the city baseball fields here uh, it's all volunteers that do that stuff and and it's a low budget outfit you know like i mean there's no all the money that goes into it is donated or one of those type deals but i remember years ago i tried this for the very first time uh if you go out there at the right time of the year you can you can basically broadcast broadcast spray glyphosate over the top of your dormant bermuda grass and it's going to take care of all those little weeds it's going to take care of a lot of the Dallas grass, because that stuff doesn't really go dormant very easily. It stays green almost yeah. all year round. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to take care of that stuff. It does a real nice job of taking care of everything if you hit it at the right spot. Sure. And the so the rate for doing that, now is the perfect time of the year to be doing that. It's We just got over a little cold spell. That ice definitely, if any Bermuda was was trying to green up. Yeah, that, Bermuda's that not, dormant right now. It, it mm-hmm. is dormant. You're, you're going to have to look pretty hard to find any green in Bermuda grass. And so if you go out there this time of the year, uh, maybe even a week from now or so, it's still mm-hmm. going to be enough time. You just want to look at the Bermuda grass and yeah. make sure it's not a lot of green growth starting to come out of your Bermuda grass because then you could ding it. But but if you take and you spray about – now this is going to be per acre. Baseball field's about three acres or so. Football field about an acre. Uh, if you go out there this time of the year and, and you, you spray 12 to 16 ounces, 16 ounces being the high side – 12 ounces being, sure. you know, the low side, somewhere in the middle of there, uh, uh, 12 to 16 ounces of, of some sort of glyphosate. Now, this is for probably for a four-pound glyphosate. Uh, 12 to 16 ounces of that makes you some surfactant in there. Uh, go out there and, and, and just broadcast spray it over the top of your Bermuda grass. You're going to knock out all this competition. Yeah. And then come out and maybe follow that with, like, some, some triple 15 fertilizer, some – because it's almost getting a little late to put your phosphorus and your potassium out uh-huh. on your grass in order to get some get some use out of it because it moves through the soil so slow compared to nitrogen. Uh, so so the earlier you get the phosphorus and your potassium out, which is your second number, so like a 15-15-15 fertilizer, it's going to be uh, – it's going to be uh, – uh, your your last two numbers are going to tell you your percentages of, of – um, of phosphorus and potassium so so right now is the time of the year to be putting those 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 last two numbers out uh, so they can get into the soil and become plant available by the time that your warm season grass is needed so like for instance if you're going to put out 100 pounds per acre of a triple 15 you're going to be putting out 15 actual pounds of phosphorus and you're going to be putting out 15 actual pounds of potassium and then 15 pounds of nitrogen but a lot of that nitrogen is going to, you know, wash down through the soil pretty quickly, get eaten up by microbes, different things like that. You lose nitrogen very fast, but phosphorus and potassium is a little slower. That's a whole episode of its own. 
But right, but so if if you go out there and you you spray this this Roundup, this glyphosate over the top of your dormant Bermuda grass, it's gonna it's gonna knock out pretty much any competition that's trying to get started right now. And then your 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 Bermuda grass is gonna be able to green up It'll, and go. Yeah, no competition. It's so gonna, when it gets ready to go, it just it's that's gonna, right. Yeah. It's gonna kill your ryegrass. It's gonna kill any little broadleaf weed. Yeah, henbit right now. Hen, oh, I that henbit is terrible. Right now, henbits coming, and these are little cool season weeds. Now, so a lot of times the frost doesn't get them. So henbits, uh, chickweed, little geraniums. Now glyphosate has a hard time with henbit yeah. sometimes, uh, especially when it's cold. Glyphosate doesn't yes. like to work when it's too cold. No, that's why does. there's a fine tuned line right here. Where it, where it works and doesn't work you got to get it out when it's warm enough to work but not warm enough for your yeah. bermuda grass to to be coming out so so uh it if you want to mix a little bit of of uh some type of a 2,4-D or something in there or maybe mix some atrazine in there uh that's going to be a pre-emerge it's going to give you or maybe some trimac trimac southern that'll kill trimac's going to help you kill some of those broad tougher to kill broadleaf weeds like your hen bit and stuff and if you mix a little atrazine in there it's going to give you some residual for a few weeks to keep new little weed growth from coming up at the same time good it's a it's a really good uh cheap well it used to be cheap it's still pretty inexpensive if you figure what it does yeah because so uh, you, you kill your grasses and it. you kill your broad leaves you know you, you knock all that stuff sure. out and what you said the high rate was 16 so that's basically a pint per acre not very much most yards are nowhere near an acre so yeah at 40 dollars yeah. a, a 40 dollars a gallon you know yeah. what is it, eight pints in a gallon yeah four quarts so yeah pints half quart mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You go to figuring that it's, it's relatively inexpensive still uh, to do that, and there's not many, not many post-emergent herbicides out there that's going to kill grasses and broadleaves like yeah. like what the glyphosate does. Works really good on a baseball field unless you've got ryegrass that you're trying to get going. Uh, football field, if there's still a grass football field around, there ain't many of them left. Pretty much all gone to turf now. Yeah. Uh, but if you do still have a grass one left, your Bermuda grass yard. But what does this not work in? This does not work in St. Augustine grass. Don't do it in St. Augustine. You will kill the heck out of your St. Augustine grass with this. But it does work good in Bermuda grass. Yeah, yeah. That's one thing. St. Augustine grass is really pretty, but it's just weed control is a little tougher in that. Uh, and so it is that time of the year if you're want if you looking for something in your, your dormant Bermuda grass yards, go out there and hit it with a 12 to 16 ounce per acre rate of, of uh, and I'd have to do the math to figure that per thousand square feet if you're talking about a yard, but... But uh, there's forty three thousand five sixty five hundred and sixty square feet in a in an acre, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, so I'd have to do the do that to figure out exactly how many ounces that would be per thousand square feet, uh, if you were doing it in your yard. But that's how many ounces you would put out there per acre in order to uh, in order to do that. Uh, there's some other different chemical. Uh, chemical mixes you could use later on in the season i'm not going to mention those just yet that you can that you can mix in to kill some of the uh, uh weeds that are coming up but it, i guess if you wanted to this time of the year in your saint augustine grass there you can mix a little atrazine and trimax southern as as larry was telling me about uh so your atrazine again is a pre-emerge uh that has some that has some activity on grass burrs if you live in or sand burr i guess they call it if you live in the sandier sandier areas around here and then you can mix some Trimax Southern in there with it too to take care of the little broadleaf weeds that has come up. Now, if you notice, I hadn't said anything about any grass weeds because none of this is going to have post-emergent effect on any kind of any kind of grass weeds. But it, the Trimax is going to take out any broadleafs that are up. The Trimax Southern is what you have to have on St. Augustine grass. The, the, the trade name is Trimax Southern. Uh, you can mix about two ounces of Trimax Southern per gallon mixed with uh, two ounces of atrazine per gallon, and and here in a couple weeks, probably 
and probably uh, close to the uh, uh, first to uh, sometime in March probably would be the best time, depending on the weather and temperatures. Uh, that's what you have to watch the closest. Uh, you know, you'll go ahead and hit it with this two ounces per gallon of atrazine and two ounces per gallon of Trimax Southern. And uh, you could put that over the top of your Bermuda grass or you could put that over the top of your St. Augustine grass, either one. And maybe, you know, hit that one time toward the middle of March and then hit it again about three weeks later with the exact same thing. And that should technically take care of your grass burrs in your yard. They're hard to get once they come up. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sand burrs are really hard to control once that stuff comes up. But uh, uh, anyway, so that's that's something you could do too. Like I said, also, you could start to put out your – Maybe like your phosphorus and potassium fertilizers. Typically, a a fifty pound bag of that fertilizer. We have a really good one that Helena makes that that Larry once told me about. It's a twenty dash four dash eight, meaning meaning you know it's 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 a it's a oh let's see what was it that the uh, the 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 ideal blend that you want I think for Bermuda grass is a is a four to one to two ratio of nitrogen to phosphorus to potassium, a four to one to two. So four parts nitrogen, uh, one part uh, phosphorus to two parts potassium. And this is all, uh, man, we could do, we'll have to do a whole episode on, on, on fertilizing because now that's gotten super expensive too. And so the best way that you can, uh, uh, that you could, the best thing to do, I guess, would be to do a soil sample first. And look at what you actually need. Don't waste money on putting something out that you don't need. Uh, but that's, that's, we'll have to do a whole episode on that because there's so much goes into that. But that's one way to save money. But if you're talking about a little yard, the 50-pound bag of that 20-4-8 fertilizer that we have or that Larry, Larry had told me about, perfect formulation for, for grass and the, the ratio of the nutrients. One bag will do about 5,000 square feet, so so it's still relatively inexpensive to do, but this particular one has, has sulfur, iron, and zinc in it, and uh, and the iron in it really does good things for grass, but it need, the grass needs to be a little greener before probably it's going to get a benefit out of out of that iron. I, uh, so I guess we'll talk about that a little bit more another date, but, so, but now, like I said, now is the time if you wanted to to get ready to start planting potatoes to – to, to hit your dormant Bermuda with that 12 to sure. 16 ounce rate of, of Roundup or some type of glyphosate followed by, uh, you know, like a blend of fertilizer, like a one-to-one-to-one ratio, triple triple 13, triple 15, triple 17. They're all the same. You know, it is that. And, and so that is basically what the time of the year it is to do that on your yards. It's hard to believe that spring is already here. It's coming. And so is there anything else that we might have accidentally missed that – well, I mean, always trap feral hogs, you know, they're still coming. There's, you know, and so be thinking, I guess, from a wildlife standpoint, those four things, that stuff that you can be doing right now that's applicable to your property. Um, also, I guess be thinking on your mind, too, if you're on that wildlife valuation to uh, be thinking about, you know, doing your annual report. That's going to be coming up. And if you are doing these things, be sure that you document it that as well. So. Because these things that Chancey talked about, if you have your place under wildlife management, you got to document what you're doing out there. Of course, if you have it under wildlife management, yes. you already know this. But these things all count towards that. Sure, absolutely they do. All these management practices, you know, that we discussed, you know, they'll fall under one of those categories of habitat management, you know, or <clears throat> supplemental food, all those seven categories. One of them, census, we didn't get to browse surveys, but that would fall under census, something like that. And so there's just something to keep you busy for a week. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I guess that's it for this week, Chancey. All righty. Well, enjoyed it. Like I said, everybody out there, stay warm and enjoy this absolutely beautiful day that we're fixing to have here in Central Texas. And y'all have a good week. 
Bye-bye.